We live in a connected world. We as humans are connected with smart devices and social media platforms. Our homes are connected via sprinklers, lights, televisions, appliances, doorbells, and alarms. Cars are connected to their drivers and manufacturers, and in some cases, each other. And industry is connected with machines speaking to each other, sensors monitoring the process health, and artificial intelligence making decisions for optimization. In this episode of The Thermal Review, we discuss how cloud-based monitoring is changing condition-based maintenance in an industrial setting. Hey everyone, I'm David Brussel. And I'm Marcus Terran. And this is The Thermal Review, a podcast about sensing, imaging, and automation advancements from the perspective of a couple technology geeks. In each episode, we discuss how the world is changing for cloud-based monitoring, quality assurance, and non-destructive testing. We've witnessed a lot of change over the past couple of decades working in the imaging solution space. We hope to share some of that experience and that of our guests in helping spread the word on solving problems with thermal imaging. Marcus, good day. How are you? Good. How are you doing? <laughs> I'm doing well. I'm excited about um, this subject for today. Um, how, what, what do you think about it? I think it's exciting because I've been uh, in that sort of world for a very, very long time. <laughs> yeah. In fact, I don't believe, Marcus, many know this about you, but you once were a plant manager. Yeah. Up to your eyeballs, I'm sure, in plant maintenance. <laughs> oh, many, many moons ago. And I remember um, having a little stretcher in my office sleeping there. You know, that happened on several uh, occasions. Um, and uh, it, it was rough. <laughs> so I can <laughs> emphasize with uh, folks that are, you know, dealing with maintenance issues, you know, because uh, as we say, the show must go on and, uh, you know, production can't stop. And if something happens, it's definitely a panic on to to find, uh, you know, find the right solution and find find a fix and do it quick, you know. Yeah. Can you share a little more, I, I guess, history into that, uh, into that background, Marcus? Yeah, absolutely. So I came over to the United States as probably, you know, folks can figure out. I have a little bit of an accent. I come from Germany. <laughs> so I ended up here, um, touched down in, in Torrance uh, near LA um, in 96. Um, and I started working in a, in a textile manufacturing plant and uh, taking care of textile machines from a maintenance point of view. And, and uh, actually from started with commissioning a machine back in the days together with my dad, actually he, his job was deploying these, these machines. That's how I kind of ended up here. And then when you start wiring up the machine and automating it, you, you have very in-depth knowledge of the machine and you know, you, you absolutely perfect match for troubleshooting any issues. Um, and I did this for a while. And then the owner of the company said, Hey, what are we going to do if you leave here? And, uh, the machine goes down. I said, well, you know, you can, you can call us back. We'll, we'll come over and, you know, we'll, we'll fix it for you. And he says, well, I have two hours to get the machine back up and running based on the output of this machine. And I says, you have a problem because the flight takes 12 from Germany. <laughs> and he didn't, he did he didn't like that answer. He didn't so he, laugh, huh? No. He says, no, you're going to stay here. And like, I'm like, what do you mean? <laughs> no, no, you, you're staying. I'll make sure you're staying. <laughs> so that's how I got hired on. 
and then uh, after a while i you know i agreed to this deal and i i um after a while i um i was getting bored because the machine was was running because uh, as you can see by the failure curves of new equipment typically in the beginning you have a lot of little hiccups uh, when you run off a machine once the machine is running it's in you know it's usually very few problems um after the initial startup hiccups and those kind of things but then so i got i got bored i went back to the owner and said don't don't get me wrong but i'm a, i'm a little bit bored um he said the machine is just running fine and i feel that i'm i'm not you know pulling my weight here i i'd like to do something else you have you know if you have something else to give me and he says, oh, sure. Why don't you take care of all of the machines? <laughs> and um, mind you, those were like six production buildings full of machines, different machinery I've never seen in my life. And I'm like, ooh. <laughs> so I was sent back to Germany uh, and, and uh, you know, Italy and, 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 and Switzerland and, and Austria. And I got training on all of these other machines. Anyways, long story short, um, I, I learned how to you know, troubleshoot all of these machines, understanding how they were working. And shortly thereafter, they um, they promoted me to become to become the the, the plant manager in, in that plant. And uh, here I was, uh, you know, 25 years old, and all of a sudden I had 30 people, about 15 uh, uh, mechanics and 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 15 electricians uh, across three shifts. And they're like, "Here you go, you're in charge." Like, no machine can be down. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like great. <laughs> so, so that's why I can really, really uh, emphasize with um, with folks in maintenance because um, anytime any problem was happening, and there were plenty, um, they would just call me and says, "Hey, you gotta you gotta take care of this." The production managers were yelling at me, and you know I need to run production, or my production just got ruined because the machine stopped, and you know we can do it all over again, and. So yeah, so that's that's kind of my my insight. So I, I spent about three years doing that, and it's a to a degree it's a it's a bit ungrateful kind of a job because everybody expects you to have everything up and running. It's like you know, and, and you you cannot you know always take it personal, but but people get very upset. The people that are in charge of production, output, uh, and quality, and everybody comes down breathing down your neck and like telling you to hurry up, you know, <laughs> not under, <laughs> not understanding the technical side of things and how difficult it is sometimes to, to even find and locate an issue, you know, and, and, and dealing with all of that. So, yeah. Well, thank you uh, for sharing that background. I, I knew this of course. So that's why coming into today to, to today's topic subject matter, I was like, Oh, this is perfect. This is right up Marcus's alley. But I, I don't, I don't believe many out there, you know, until now, of course, uh, knew that about you um, as part of your uh, your career. So, um, you know, when you were running the plant there, uh, I'm sure you were involved or at least aware of the different types of, of maintenance programs. There's different methodologies or mindsets, if you will, around maintenance. And yep. maybe we can, we can talk a little bit about those. I've heard these uh, described... And and people will use different terminologies, and some will say, "Oh, there's four methods of maintenance," and some will say five or six. But uh, and and they kind of you know bleed, if you will, or or, or blend from one to the other as well. There's some crossover. Right. Uh, corrective maintenance being one area, preventative maintenance, predictive maintenance, uh, risk-based maintenance, 
and uh, condition-based maintenance. I've even heard like reliability-centered maintenance and those other you know terms as well. But yep. maybe we can maybe we could talk about the key ones, if you will, and and right. what's different about them. Yeah, there, there's different methodologies out there, and there's different proponents and opponents uh, out there, and it, it kind of has to do with the type of equipment that you're running, what you can do, what's what's reasonable, what sort of budgets you have. Um, unfortunately, I see way too often, I see people doing the uh, close your eyes and hope for the best maintenance, where it, it really is the whole like hindsight approach of like, oh yeah, it should be running and if it mm. breaks down, we'll deal with it later kind of a thing. The problem with that is that's usually the most costly of all of them um, because you have these these unscheduled downtimes you're in the middle of a, like I said earlier, middle of a production run or something, and then certain processes require you to, you know, shut down the machine properly, run it all out, empty the machine out, you know, redo everything and start all over. So you have to dump a lot of your production sometimes, and it gets very costly. Not to talk about, uh, or not to mention even the the upset um, of the customer because now you're going to be delivering late. Um, you have scheduling conflicts with your shifts because the folks that are supposed to run it can't do it anymore because it spills over into second and third shift. Maybe the the folks in second and third shift are not as qualified to run it. And, you know, all of those kind of issues uh, become apparent once you actually have a breakdown, right? So the, the whole idea of doing a maintenance program or implementing one is really uh, the one of, of prevention, right? Because yeah. you want to, the more you have this under control, the, the less of a cost, the less of a surprise it becomes very similar to to you taking care of your car right if you're doing your your oil change on a changes on a regular basis there's less of a chance you're going to have some unpredictable wear and tear issues you know with your engine right but if you keep running your oil down to the point where the alarm light comes on on your dashboard that's probably not the best way of taking care of your car right so so those are those are kind of um the different things that are kind of addressing things. So then going back to, you know, let's say predictive maintenance, it's more of a, you know, by statistical knowledge or historical knowledge that certain things um, will happen at a certain time of usage or after a certain, you know, run uh, cycles, whatever you measure this in, and you can kind of predict and say, okay, that bearing um, will fail, you know, let's say once a month or once every three months or what, whatever the, the runtime is and the load is on that bearing. So therefore, let's make sure when we have a scheduled downtime, let's replace that bearing after every two mm. months or something like this, because the cost of, of a scheduled shutdown and replacing the bearing is a heck of a lot less than, than actually waiting for it to break and other things to, to, to get destroyed in the process. So that's kind of the, you know, the, the, the quintessence of a, of a predictive sort of a maintenance. Preventative maintenance is more like uh, the good practice of, let's say, if it comes to lubrication, you know, take your grease gun around and make sure you're squirting uh, a bunch of grease all over the place on a regular basis just to prevent things from happening without even checking or predicting it, you know. And, and there's other um, things, of course, on the electrical side, what we used to do, we would use, uh, you know, once a week uh, because of the vibration and everything else, we would just take screwdrivers to our switching cabinets and just retighten all the electrical connections. It was a really, you know, literally mm. blister forming job because you would do thousands of screw terminals and just go in there and give it a quarter turn because they would get loose because of the thermal cycling and the vibration on the machine all the time. You would just go in there and retighten these things up because a lot of times, 
you would have failures uh, due to loose electrical connections, you know, and and the list goes on depending on what sort of uh, systems, um, you know, you maintain. It could be a pneumatic system, make sure that the the filtering system, you know, is good. Like if you have an oil and water separator or something and an air filter, make sure those are getting maintained properly, right? If you have computer equipment, make sure the ventilation works and, and, and you're replacing your, your, your filters in front of the vents, you know, making that, you know, all those little things go a long way if you're doing them on a regular basis. And so they can build up to a critical sort of uh, level, if you will, you know, condition. Yeah. yeah. Condition-based, just to add that, condition-based monitoring um, is something where you can test a condition of something, right? So it could be a visual inspection. For instance, to, to put the analogy up there for your car, if you check your tires and you know mm. you're down to a few millimeters of profile, that's a condition-based preventive maintenance in a sense where you can say, oh, you know what, that tire looks pretty bald. I better go and replace it before the belt shows up and my tire blows up, right? So you can do the same thing on machinery sometimes where, and there's even sensors for that, where you look at the the oil of a machine and, and you, you do oil condition testing. And depending on how much sort of rub off you have or whatever you're testing for, you can kind of figure out when either there needs to be an oil change or there needs to be mechanical components replaced because of the, the rub off and, and that sort of thing. So there's a lot of different different methods of of, you know, taking care of your equipment. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. In fact, this is this I think this is a good point to to perhaps transition. You started to talk about, you know, well, you gave the example of condition-based monitoring or maintenance on your car by monitoring the condition and use the tire example. Um when it comes to an industrial setting, there's um I've heard them called modalities, uh, you know, different tools or techniques, if you will, for condition monitoring. Right. Um, maybe we can talk about some of those different different modalities uh, or disciplines. I've even heard them called as well, because people really do become experts in these these areas, these disciplines, to include, um, you know, thermography, infrared inspection. Uh, vibration analysis. You've mentioned vibrating, you know, screws coming loose on a uh, loose uh, on, on electrical cabinets. Um, oil analysis, uh, ultrasound. Those are like those. Those are like the key, the big modalities. Uh, maybe we can maybe we can talk about those transition a bit now and how you how, you know what what are the differences? Uh, are there advantages to some of those modalities over over others, depending upon the targets in industrial settings? Right. Yeah. So there's certain uh, you know physical phenomena that you can you can use sensors for to measure. And um, you know, for instance, let's let's talk about a vibration analysis, which is very commonly done on uh, mechanical bearings, like ball bearings, for instance. Right. So the idea is that they're um, you know a, a, a bearing that's properly mounted, that's running round, should not have a ton of vibration because the, the, the balls that are circulating in the raceway of the bearing, everything is running smooth, it's properly lubricated. So the, the vibration analysis um, should have a certain fingerprint, if you will, if you're looking at, you're typically using some sort of an accelerometer or something that, that it might be a, a single axis or two or three axis um, sort of a 
accelerometer that measures essentially vibration of the bearing. So you you mount this. This could be a shaft of a motor. For instance, we in in, in our textile plant we had this massive um, electrical motor that would drive this uh, this compressor, um, and that thing was under extreme load conditions uh, sometimes, especially when it kicks in the compressor and and when there's a lot of load. Um, and that shaft had to be like laser aligned to the rest of it to make sure that there's no torsional forces being created by a misalignment of the, the shaft, which then would really kill that bearing because it would just kind of grind it down very quickly. And so if, if you place a, a vibration sensor on a bearing housing, you can um, you can take essentially the, the vibrational data from it, but the, the um, what you have to do since vibration is typically very high frequent, you have to also sample with your data acquisition system in, in a very very high frequency in order to to not miss any sort of events there, right? Um, and there's there's a lot of research that has been done where they can, based on the type of vibration and, and the noise that a bearing creates, um, they can actually predict is it is it a, a damage in the outer raceway, on the inner raceway, on the balls, is it a lubrication issue, is it something that the shaft is causing? There's a lot of different things that they forensically can tell but it's it's fairly complex, and then there's also math behind it, um, and there's there's maybe a Fourier fast Fourier transform to to look for certain frequency mm. components. Are they getting stronger? You know, if you have some knocking on, you know, sometimes you can even hear it or feel it uh, yourself. Um, and then um, you can, based on on that frequency pattern, you can start to try to do an early prediction of of an issue. Essentially, uh, it becomes a little difficult because each machine has its own noise fingerprint you know some of which may be might be normal some of which may be not so normal uh, there's applications nowadays where they're using ai like artificial intelligence to kind of teach the ai okay here's the normal frequency pattern if you see something deviating from that let us know sort of a thing um but the the problem with frequency analysis is that if you have um, you know you have 64 bearings to monitor you got to run 64 RF cables to these accelerometers. You got to mount them all. What are you going to do with all these cabling in, in, in an industrial environment? Now you got to run conduits. It's a it's a it's a quite the endeavor to get this all installed. And now you need some really expensive, high speed data acquisition system that costs a lot of money to bring all uh -huh. of these channels in and, and and manage the whole thing. And so you typically only see these installed on some really really high end. You know, very expensive sort of equipment. So, so that's one one element of of you know doing vibrational analysis on 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 things. Um, you know, then then there's the the option to to do that thermally and just take a thermal camera and look at the bearing because the the, the thought here is okay if a bearing isn't properly lubricated or if it's being overloaded or or there's some damage to it. Um, friction increases, right? On one hand, that creates a different sound pattern for the accelerometer. But on the other hand, it also creates a different thermal pattern that can be picked up with a with a thermal camera, for instance. And so you can use a thermal camera. The advantage there is no cables to run other than the one Ethernet cable or something to the camera. But you can now maybe take um, a single shot and you can maybe take 10 bearings in one image rather than running all these cables to it. You, you plant a few cameras around and there you go. And now you can say, hey, if this gets warmer than X, now you got to check that bearing. So those those are, you know, possibilities I guess for, for these condition monitoring, sort of mm. applications mm. there. 
you know. How does how does oil analysis fit into into all of this? So oil analysis oil analysis um, is typically again they they're looking for a um, chemical um, sort of an analysis. So th there's two things. There's the the in process analysis where there's a sample device that takes uh, oil samples on a regular basis and uh, analyzes them. And this could be for particles in the oil. It could be magnetically to see is there any, any sort of met, met, metallic wrap off or how much is there, mm. um, you know, which you, a certain amount of wrap off is normal, but I mean, like, is there, you know, at a certain level, you find a threshold, there's chemical analysis where um, you can look for um, oil being, uh, getting too warm, being burned essentially you can sometimes a good mechanic can actually smell that um so you know and then there's the 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 sampling where you're doing it off-site where you just take a sample you send it to a lab and the lab does an, an analysis from it um like a you know with a with a mass spectrometer or something and, and looks for the components in in there and, and can kind of figure out what's what's in it to what degree, and then based on that, you can kind of say, okay, well, that's not normal here, right? It could also mm. be if you have, um, you know, any sort of uh, shaft seals, for instance, and you, you're separating the lubrication oil from something else, it could be that chemicals are starting to leak into the oil, so that you can start noticing there too, where you would have to otherwise disassemble the whole machine in order to figure out, is that shaft seal still intact? So th those are all possibilities there um, with, with oil analysis, you know, and, and, and those things are more difficult or, or those are not really an application for thermography, really. Those are more uh, really a chemical analysis for, for things there to do yeah. an early prediction of, of seal integrity inside the machine somewhere. In our last podcast episode, we were focusing on early fire detection. And, and in that podcast, we talked about the pathway to ignition and um in some of the uh uh content that's available on the movitherm website we show a graphic if you will and it shows the different sensing technologies if you will for uh early fire detection along that pathway to ignition where thermal imaging you know is at the very forefront uh sensing a hot spot and before that hot spot can smolder and turn into smoke, which you start to see smoke detectors and different types of smoke detectors um, being, um, you know, uh, more effective further down the pathway to ignition. Right. At listening to you talk about, you know, a motor, this and bearings and things like that, it seems that you could almost have a, a pathway to failure, if you will, chart for uh different industrial devices in fact yep. uh whereas in a motor uh it it sounds like with the oil analysis i mean when you're doing chemical analysis here you're able to detect very subtle changes maybe very early if you will on the pathway to failure very early uh vibration sounded to me like that may be the next one on that path uh where you're able to detect um you know, changes in the, in the profile of, of, of how that, that motor moves, mm -hmm. uh, essentially. Um, and then maybe thermography or infrared camera technology, at least for motors comes a little further down that pathway to failure. Um, because you're at that point in time, you're looking for the generation of heat. 
right? I don't know, does that make sense? It, it does, and it's it's kind of a bit between the vibrational analysis and thermography. Uh, sometimes thermography is earlier, and sometimes the vibration is earlier. It kind of depends mm. on the mechanical design of the machinery on some level. Um, and um, what you also need, though, is with the thermography itself, it really just gives you one indication, and that's heat, right? Now, yeah. since, since you have an image of the heat, let's say you're imaging an entire electrical motor, you can actually see different things. You can see if, if the very front gets warm and there's a bearing, let's say uh, if it's um, a, um, an asynchronous um, AC motor or something like this, that basically just have, it has a, a rotor or a stator and it has a bearing up front and a bearing in the back and then maybe a cooling fan. Uh, it's usually just popped onto the shaft that while it's rotating, it's cooling itself and it's blowing air back over the cooling fins of the motor, for instance. Um, we had often failure modes where just, it was a very dirty environment and you had uh, a lot of gunk uh, on on the fan cover. It was completely clogging up a lot of lint because we were working in textile. Um, mm. So there was a lot of lint build up on, on the fan cover on the back. So the fan wasn't blowing air anymore because it, it couldn't suck in any air because it was completely clogged up. So now the motor started to run a heck of a lot warmer now because the fan wasn't blowing uh, anymore or a very lot of you know less efficiency there. Um, and this could go unnoticed for days on end. Um, nobody would pay attention or the motor is somewhere hidden underneath the machinery somewhere, another cover over it, whatever the case may be. So that, that could be in a situation where a thermal camera can see like, hey, this motor is getting warmer and warmer and warmer. Like what's going on here? You know, and it's, it's a simple take a brush and brush off the stuff from the back, you know, that sort of thing. Or you had, we had situations where the, the, the fan itself just had slipped on the shaft. You know, I was just pressed fitted on or something and it had slipped and it was just uh, not spinning properly anymore. It was just kind of dragging along on the shaft, mm. uh, those kind of things. Or you have bearing failure. That's happening quite often as well. Um, more towards the front typically because there's a higher load on, on the front shaft of the motor. Um, so you have bearing failure, you know, and, and if you run this thing, um, to the ground where the bearing completely seizes and fails. I mean, you can burn up the motor, you can do all kinds of things. We had a lot of motors that had to come out and we had to replace windings, they had to get rewinded. And uh, there was a shop that, that would do rewindings of motors because it was actually still cheaper than buying a new motor back in the day. So I'm not sure if that's still the case, but um, things like that. But you had a lot of downtime all the time. Nonetheless, though, one thing to keep in mind, uh, thermally speaking, yes, there's a lot of information there, but um, the question is really for a really early detection because you have, you can run different processes on the machine, right? So the motor might experience different load conditions doing different parts of the recipe of, of whatever that machine does because the motor may speed up. It may have to drive some more load. So it's natural to expect a temperature variation of the motor. The question then becomes, okay, is this temperature variation expected? Is it normal in the normal range? Or does is it indicative of, hey, there could be something wrong, right? So one thing to separate this would be, okay, is it is it more towards the bearing up front? Or is it really the winding that gets warmer? It could be what we have done often, if it's a three-phase motor, if one phase becomes loose, the motor becomes unbalanced. So there's more load going through two windings than compared to the third, and it should be balanced through all three. And that tends to get the motor warm. Um, so 
you know, the, the the quick indication is like if if the motor runs warmer than its specified operating range, it's a clear, it's a slam dunk. It's like okay, something is wrong. The motor should never run warmer than it's spec'd out to be because that could really cause burning of of the windings and those kind of things. So that's clear. But if you really wanted to catch it earlier, you have to also have knowledge about the actual load condition of the motor mm. because a higher load means more heat generated, right? So it would be necessary in those instances to actually measure the phase current. If you have a three phase, we could attach phase current monitors on the three phases. And then we can tell, okay, are all three phases running the same current? That means it's balanced. And if the answer says, okay, that's great. And then how strong of a current is going in? We know what the voltage is. We know what the current is. We can calculate what the total wattage is that the, that the motor is under the, the total load. And from that, we can gather, okay, how much heat should we expect, you know? And But if the load increases, you see the current increasing and the temperature increasing. And then if you have historical data on this doing a process and it goes outside of those bounds, temperature and current goes up beyond where you're expecting it to be. Now we have an early indication of, okay, something isn't right anymore. Either something is jamming up in the machine that the motor is driving could be a roller that has its own bearing that are seizing up you know or the motor itself has an issue but either way you find a way to to do kind of like an early prediction there but it's it's not quite as simple anymore as as just putting a thermal camera at something you know yeah you, yeah. you have you know you have that in in like if you're pointing a thermal camera on electrical connections there you can kind of see oh if if if, if this circuit breaker you know is under the same load as the one next to it but the right one, you know, it's, it's a lot warmer. You know that circuit breaker is has either a loose connection, or the circuit breaker is getting weak, meaning it, it it has a higher resistance than it should have, and therefore it's producing more heat. You know, so those are things. But you do need to know what you're dealing with in order to to um, design a a condition-based monitoring the proper way, so not to create false uh, alarms. You know. Yeah. No. Exactly. Yeah. And you know, we've been talking a lot so far about mechanical systems but you just touched on electrical uh, electrical systems um and thermography of course you know to me and I, I have the thermography background thermography is like a perfect tool for electrical inspection right. just as you hit on anytime you have an increase in resistance yeah whatever may be causing that um you'll and you have current trying to flow uh you're going to see heat yeah. And 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 then you can use that information uh, to diagnose and hopefully do a corrective action um, and avoid uh, a problem or a surprise. Yeah, we also see things. For instance, um, there's hydraulic pumping systems for certain manufacturing processes. You know, and uh, they hydraulic pumps are under an enormous amount of pressure you know, with the oil that they're pumping, you know, depending on, on what they're doing. And I mean, again, it's natural for them to run warm, but there's also situations where we had customers where they, uh, if they're running abnormally warm, they can actually catch fire. They have a, a situation there or they can pop a seal and then the, the hot hydraulic oil splashes all over the place. And hydraulic oil is a nasty sort of a chemical. Sure. You don't want to have that splashing around all over the place. And so those are things, you know, that, that, uh, that we have, uh, you know, monitoring applications in. 
Yeah. In fact, this is a great, thank you for bringing this up. This is a great, I think, opportunity or time for us to, to shift the discussion a bit. We've been, we've been talking about, you know, the different types of maintenance. We, we, we talked about the different modalities for, for doing inspection or condition monitoring. Uh, the subject here is how cloud monitoring or uh, the internet of things or industrial internet of things is, is impacting or changing uh how folks do maintenance. Um, maybe, uh, I, and we've, we've talked about this a number of times, Marcus, but maybe at a very high level, again, what is, what is the industrial internet of things? Yeah. So it's the, the IIoT, um, always sounds like I have a stutter, but that's what it's called. <laughs> <laughs> internet of things is IOT and industrial internet of things is the IIoT. Um, it's just a distinction to say, Hey, this is specifically, monitoring industrial processes and you know in an industrial setting rather than in a commercial or end user sort of a scenario uh, mm. other than that it's essentially the same thing um so with that now we can run um we can put intelligence sensors like we mentioned like current sensors and and, and vibration sensors and, and thermography or like thermal imaging cameras or and any other sensor level sensors whatever you can think of that could help you uh, pinpoint an issue before it happens. We can tie all of these sensors in. I call it sensor fusion, really, because you can bring all these different sensors. There's thousands of different sensors. You can bring all of these things in, and you know what they are typically supposed to measure. And if they go out of bounds, or even go out of bounds with respect to each other, because sometimes it's a an interdependency, right? Um, where everything else, you know, pressure and, 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 and current and everything needs to go up. And if one gets out of bounds, you, you're like, okay, that, that doesn't track the way it should be or whatever it is. That's where the, the domain knowledge kind of comes in from the process. Mm. Um, and then you tie all of this stuff in and typically you have some sort of a, well, some people refer to it as a bridge or a gateway. This is a fancy way of, of, you know, tying this into some sort of an embedded computer. Um, and then um, it is basically an abstraction layer to to communicate on one end on the edge, basically on the factory floor, to all of these different sensors, and 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 manages um, you know the data coming in, and on the other side, um, it's connecting to the cloud, essentially the internet, if you will, to some server, and and pumps all that data up, and then you have a nice uh, cloud interface, um, you know, on your phone or any any other web browser enabled device, and then you typically have dashboards that show you at a glance. You know, is, is everything in the green, is something in the orange, is something in the red that you need to pay attention to? Or it will, you know, essentially on a critical sort of thing, give you a warning or an alarm. But the, the, the advantage here is that you can equip your entire plant strategically with these sensors or, or at least the, the critical equipment and, um, and figure out if, if there's anything going wrong. And, and it's really just reporting an alarm based on an event, right? So you don't have to look at the at the screen all day long other than you have an interest to look at it. But if there's something going out of bounds, um, it, it'll, it'll notify you, you know? So you have kind of that peace of mind where before you have to, you know, you have to put your, your maintenance crew on it every time and, and do your morning and your noon and your, your evening round and something and to check everything and see if anything is out of the ordinary. Instead of that, you have now have it all up in the cloud and then something you have all your little listening devices, if you will, that'll, <laughs> that'll tell you your, your ears and eyes if, if something is, is not working properly. And usually with a much higher degree of accuracy than, than a human eye or a human can do, you know. It's been interesting to see you, you talked a little bit about this, uh, about, uh, 
on edge capabilities or intelligence on the edge. Um, historically, again, me coming from the infrared space, uh, any type of remote monitoring with an infrared camera would require some type of PLC or some type of computer system tied to a camera. And then we would put that smarts inside that computer to say, if you see this temperature threshold, you know, then do this. If then, you're right, trigger an alarm or send right. an alert. But the pretty advanced computing happen happening on a computer uh, versus where we are today. Uh, maybe you could speak to a little more about that, about on-edge intelligence and capabilities and how that's changing things. Yeah, so the um, that's a good point because the, 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 the let's call it the old-fashioned way, even though it's still being done this way, you know. Um, but everything is moving more and more cloud-based and, and, and there's, there's challenges because there's the two topics is there's the, the big data topic which essentially, um, you know, is high uh, high resolution, high speed, high volume of data versus the IoT, which is usually low volume of data, low frequency, and event-based. That's mm. how I separate the two, right? Um, so to me, it's really, you know, I like to give uh, analogies. Let's think about the stock market, right? So... There's the high frequency traders that look at every little move in the market and they need every data at all times. And it's a, you know, it's a lot of from, from, from hundreds of different stocks and everything else. They need to know everything. Whereas the, the IOT is basically saying, hey, um, you should sell stock ABC right now because of X, Y, Z. But other than that, you don't have to worry about the stock market. So that's kind of what the IOT does, right? It's really just letting you know when you need to know. So you can go yeah. about your life and focus on the things that matter while having peace of mind. If something goes wrong, somebody's going to let you know, you know? So, but the problem is sometimes that the, the, the sensory input, especially from a camera is very high frequent and very high throughput. So how do you, how do you still that down to something that can be digested, um, you know, in, in a much smaller sort of a footprint in the cloud, right? So you need an edge device that kind of goes through that. Uh, either the sensor has certain smarts that can do the processing, let's say in a smart camera, it does it on board of the camera and outputs whatever information you need to output, or you, you transfer this to the edge device, some computing device that sits on the factory floor, or you would transfer this to the cloud, but then the problem is you have to typically upload a lot of data. And, and that's, usually not the case in an IoT system. You typically don't uh, pump up a lot of data through the connections because sometimes we have cellular connections and, and the data gets, gets expensive quickly, right? And you don't yeah. want to necessarily have to rely on the cloud for, for all of the data crunching either. So that's kind of the, you know, the difference, if you will, there. And then uh, talking about AI, uh, another uh, subject matter that is becoming more and more prominent is Again, we can either have sensor-based NI where there's intelligent build-in on a small embedded system that's part of the sensor that essentially does the analysis right there and lets you know certain output criteria. Or we do this on the edge-based device, a little embedded device that has that smart build-in and then sends the rest up to the cloud. You know, That's typically what is happening. You know, sometimes you have also AI stuff happening uh, in the cloud where you just monitor certain trends and, and look for certain 
sort of patterns as well. Mm. Marcus, um, <laughs> certainly uh, in this dynamic uh, of today in the market that we have today, uh, seems like we're hearing about shortages in, in resources. I'm talking human resources, workers across the board being yep. able to, uh, you know, accomplish the job at hand. I mean, right now we're hearing all about what's happening in the airlines. Oh yeah. Uh, for many years, um, working in the, in this space, I would hear from, uh, folks in industry talk about, uh, the retiring experts, meaning those guys, you talked about them earlier. They could you know, smell, <laughs> well, that oil's burn. I have a problem here. Or, or they could literally, you know, take a screwdriver and put their head to a motor housing and say, yeah, we've got a bearing going out. They, they were just calibrated and they could like, well, that, yeah, that's a problem. Um, I would often hear from industry and it, it was across the board. It wasn't any specific industry. It could be electrical utility. It could be power generation. It could be car manufacturing, but everywhere I went, it seemed like I was hearing about, yeah, we have this retiring expertise <laughs> and we don't have a backfill coming in. Take that and couple it with the situation we're in currently where, where you're trying to hire and find, you know, expertise. How, how, how can, how, how could a company leverage this capability to perhaps solve some of those problems, leveraging this condition monitoring and cloud-based monitoring and IOT could it could they use it to plug some of that gap for, for certain for certain areas for sure i mean it's it's what they refer to as the dying breed these days right it's like yeah it's like still i'm, I'm thinking my background is like electronic engineering computer science so i'm i hear the same thing about analog um you know versus <laughs> digital right how many people in the electronic industry still understand analog there's very few people that do everything is digital but you know the world is analog so you got to eventually you get into digital, but you have to first understand the analog portion. That's the same thing in uh, in terms of um, condition monitoring, where the the folks that have been there for 10, 20, 30 years in that industry, they 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 just have the feel and the sense for it. Like you said, like they 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 just look at something and they they almost have a sixth sense developed <laughs> to be yeah. able to do this. And and yeah, the com most companies don't 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 necessarily appreciate what they have until these people do retire leave the company or, or, or you know, whatever happens. But, and, and it's, this stuff isn't being taught in school or universities at all, you know? Mm. And it's, I, I grew up in Germany. We had a, uh, an apprentice sort of program, like this, this uh, vocational educational system. They called it the dual educational system where you would, you would be actually doing your job while you're also learning the job uh, in school. So you get a basically parallel you, you get this, um, um, you know, this hands-on experience while you're applying your, your limited knowledge, and it's like a four-year program. It's very intense and immersive, but you come out of this program and you're immediately applicable. You essentially have four years' experience already in the job when you wow. graduate because you have this hands-on experience with all of these things where you immediately apply the theoretical knowledge and, and put it in in, in a real-world application. Super useful. I I wish. The U.S. would, you know, focus more on this, and and I think they mm -hmm. have to because you just can't take folks right off school and and apply them. It takes, I mean, we hire folks like this, 
and they're brilliant young folks, um, but they, they still have so much to learn, you know? So even if you find a replacement for your old <laughs> dying breed person, it takes years before you fill that gap, before somebody can even attempt to, to, to step in somebody's shoes, you know, footsteps there. So the, that's really an issue. And I think a lot of companies these days completely underestimate what's coming down the pipe there. And yeah, so circling back to technology, how, how can technology help? With that, uh, it's definitely on on that condition-based monitoring, or even you know go a step further and do process monitoring is another one of those topics where, you know, it doesn't have to be condition-based monitoring only or limited to it in terms of if something you know if if the question is is something going to break, it's like what about running a fine-tuned sort of a process to to produce good quality? Um, you would need to be able to monitor your process and and you know partially that's solved with your your HMI your, your human machine interfaces that the, the 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 manufacturer of the machine typically gives you this or what other people look at like a SCADA system or something where they where they have you know the machine processes and something like this but there's there's opportunities there especially when when you have a lot of different um, processes um, that are strung together from different machine manufacturers and you want to do kind of like a holistic view. How is my process doing from me feeding in the raw material to getting the finished product on the outside and on the output of, of the machine that typically spans multiple process steps that are not covered by an individual or any individual HMI. Now it doesn't have the holistic view that walks mm. through the entire process. So you can do that. Um, you know, nicely with, with IoT sort of solutions as well. It's Again, it's not a maintenance question here. In this case, it's more a, a, a product or a process capability question. Is it, are we making sure that we're producing good product, right? And, and have good quality and what are all the parameters that need to stay uh, in a certain range to, to assure that that happens, right? Or you may want to know what's the utilization if you are manufacturing facility like, um, Let's say you're having a CNC machine running. You want to maximize the utilization. Let's say you have an eight-hour shift. How much of that eight-hour time are you actually spending machining parts? Hmm. You know, again, it's not so much a maintenance question. It could be, but it's it's more of a the, the more I utilize the machine, the more money I I make, right? Over a certain period of time, you know, or is 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 my 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 operator taking a bunch of breaks or not taking the job that serious. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's, there's, there's things you can, you can measure and analyze, right? Why, why is my second shift producing, you know, less output than my first shift? Like what's going on? Maybe you need to train um, the second shift better. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, there's a lot of different information you can get out of, like, like the, the old saying goes, uh, you know, measure and you will improve, you know? So that's what I'm saying. It, it's the eyes and the ears on the factory floor is really what this whole IOT or IIoT yeah. really is, you know. It's a, it's an amazing too. Yeah, when you start to to monitor and measure and view what <laughs> what things are revealed, just right. like you're talking about here. Yeah. Um, we're, we're, we need to to kind of bring things to a close, and I was hoping we could talk about an application as part of wrapping things up. And I know. 
you sign a lot of non-disclosure agreements, so I'm going to be very careful <laughs> about going into too many details. But this particular application, what so impressed me was a number of things, one of which it was in a remote of remote of remote locations out in the middle of nowhere. Um, there's a substation, so it's electrical utility. That's just one industry. I'm not revealing anything there. But... Um, and it was a small, it, it was a couple cameras. Yep. Um, but because of restrictions, because of the remoteness of this installation, you had to come up with some ways to power things and to run things and connect things right? in a simple and easy fashion. And I, anyways, I was wondering, can you just maybe describe that without revealing too many details, what you did, uh, a little bit about that application? Sure. Sure. So yeah, it was an electrical substation application. Uh, it was actually um, equipment that was already running kind of um, in, in a critical state. So they were already worried about it to begin with. And they wanted to make sure that nothing catastrophic is going to happen. So they wanted to keep a very, very close eye on it. So we built a mobile um, system that could be moved around with thermal cameras. and there was no way you think substation has electricity all over the place. You would think, <laughs> but there was not a 110 volt outlet anywhere near, you know, because it was all like high voltage and this and whatever. So anyway, so the the, the conditions or the, the the requirements there were okay. It has to be uh, solar based. Uh, you know, luckily we had a lot of sunshine. But what happens at night? Because it was a 24/7 operation, so we needed also battery. Uh, backup, so we had to charge the battery while powering the system. Um, it had to be mobile, you know, and it had to be cellular connected. So it had to be completely off grid, you mm. know, right next to a substation, of course. Um, <laughs> so we uh, we designed um, and laid out a, a system like that, where we uh, we sized up a solar panel, uh, made it all mobile, made it very small and easily connectable, and everything else. And we calculated the the battery usage and everything for for our, you know, worst case scenarios, so that we can at least bridge, you know, the the 12 hours of no sunshine, if you will, and then uh, even had about three days um, of of bridge energy left, in case there was uh, cloudy days, which which you know in California that doesn't happen all that often, but you know just to make sure it's it stays online, and so we built that um, you know and had um, <clears throat> pole remote access capabilities and then was a was a cool system and you know very cool system and we can this was a fairly small one but we, we can you know we can size that any 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 size we want to really it's just a question of how much solar power and how much battery backup you need yeah and now all of a sudden even though it was in the remotest of areas the the customer wherever they are as long as they had internet connectivity from any any device, computer, or cell phone, or tablet, they could be seeing the condition of what's going on in that remote, remote area where right. you had installed. And yeah, it was a very small system. I remember that. Critical. But I think that's an interesting point as well, because you could scale it. You could add to it. Or right. you could start out very small. So for those uh, uh, in our audience today who are, who are listening... Um, just something to keep in mind I, I, through this example of 
increasing awareness through cloud-based condition monitoring, really think outside the box. doesn't matter if it's in the remotest of areas and you don't have electrical power connectivity nearby. Um, uh, or if you need to start very small, that's, that's, that's a possibility as well. Uh, but one of the advantages to, to this cloud-based connectivity, as we talked about, even with early fire detection, is that you can start out very small and, and you can scale and increase these things. And again, all the advantages of having edge capability and cloud capability coupled together and leveraging both smartly, um, you're able to increase that, that awareness in an easy fashion. Yep. Anyways. Thank you for sharing that, Marcus. I, 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 that was a unique application, and I don't think we revealed any trade secrets by talking about it. So <laughs> I think we're okay. Well, that does wrap things up today. I mean, this we could go on talking about these modalities in much greater depth, um, IoT, IIoT in much greater depth. But if you have uh, additional questions, we always invite you to... Uh, Come to the Movitherm website, visit our knowledge base uh, library there, which is um, content rich with information, uh, papers, and uh, video content as well. Uh, but that that wraps it up for for today's episode of the the thermal review. Yeah. So thanks for listening. You know, as we discussed the uh, cloud based monitoring and how it is impacting condition based maintenance in industrial settings. Uh, we hope you join us in our next episode uh, where we will discuss, uh, we're gonna shift topics a bit. We're gonna discuss different techniques for infrared non-destructive testing and how it's impacting the automotive uh, battery and uh, aerospace markets. And I promise you, you will not want to miss it. So make sure you subscribe to our podcast, The Thermal Review on iTunes or Spotify. And if you want to learn more about what we discussed in any of our thermal review podcasts, please make sure to visit www.movitherm.com. Thanks. 